I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. With the Conservatives 20 points behind Labour in the opinion polls, can Rishi Sunak save his party from destruction? Is it even desirable for the Conservative Party to survive? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by the Conservative peer and former Chief Brexit negotiator, Lord Frost. Can you describe the contemporary Conservative Party as Conservative? Yes, you can. I think very clearly you you can. It's a party that's on, on the right of British politics, but it does, and it always has, bring together different conservative philosophies, I suppose, and that's been its strength. It can be its weakness if those different philosophies are too much at odds or one is too dominant. And I think that is, that's obviously been somewhat situation in the last few years. And it feels almost as if the parties have been toying with different philosophies and none of them are quite working and it hasn't worked out what modern conservatism fully means yet. And that's, that's where it's got to get to if we're going to succeed. Do you think there's a gap between the parliamentary party in terms of their ideological views and the membership? And when you're describing that gap, would you say, you know, the parliamentary party is much more on the left than the membership? I think it's more complicated than that. I think there are obviously groups on the left, the One Nation group, on the right, the ERG, and there are others in the middle who aren't necessarily sort of strongly committed. My experience of talking to the party in the country, and I've spent quite a lot of time in the last few months going around various uh, associations and talking to people, my experience is that the party in the country, you know, does tilt to right rather than left. They are more interested in issues like immigration control, like tax cuts, and they're much more focused, I mean I'm generalising, but but much more focused on sort of cultural issues like free speech, history, the, the whole sort of gender debate that we're in at the moment. Those have greater salience and I think they worry, I worry that uh, you know, the, the parliamentary party doesn't seem to think they're as important generally as people in the country think. And if there's a gap, it's probably there, I would say. And on all of those issues, one could argue that the Conservative Party has failed. I mean, on immigration in particular, you know, we've got record levels of both legal and illegal migration. Over 40,000 people came to the UK in small boats last year. Do you feel that 
voters have been betrayed on this issue when governments time and time again have promised to bring numbers down and they've completely failed. So I think I, I, I wouldn't say they've been betrayed. I think we haven't yet delivered the policy that we promised effectively to, to deliver. And I, I think it is really important. Obviously, we must master illegal immigration and the small boats thing is the most visible. And I think we're going to have to be tough on that. So waiting to see what the government brings forward. But at least the rhetoric is is good. Let, let's see what happens. Legal immigration is obviously in numerical terms, much the most important thing. And there, you know, I think it is important to get immigration down. I've written on this. I, I think a small amount of immigration is probably good for a, a modern economy. You need something that allows sort of reskilling and churn and investment and moving people around. But I don't think the country can stand, uh, you know, the three, four, five hundred thousand people coming in net every year. It is just too large a number for us to be able to deal with uh, on a sustained basis. And I do think that needs to come down. I'm not saying it needs to be turned off overnight because we are transitioning from one economic model where we're part of a single market to another. And you can't just snap your fingers and make that happen. The economy needs to adjust. But we do need a credible plan that says this number is going to come down and our aim is that it should be number X by date X. And all our policy instruments uh, work towards achieving that end because the model has got to adjust. We have to adjust to becoming a high productivity, relatively lower immigration economy. That's what Brexit means and it has to happen. Somewhere like Japan has, has, has not adopted the mass migration model and they mm. still have high productivity, of course. They've invested hugely in, in capital and in um, machinery and technology to, to replace sort of cheap labour coming in. Now, obviously, it's not just about the economy in terms of immigration. There are issues to do with culture and society. This has been an issue I think British voters have been angry about for many, many years, decades, in fact. And this perhaps led to the Brexit vote in 2016, at least in part. When do you think people, voters, will be or should be justified in feeling betrayed when every government or every Conservative government have promised to bring numbers down. You could even go back in their manifestos to the 70s where they, they promised this, and, and they failed to do so. So when, when does that point happen? While we were in the EU, you know, we had no control. That's, that's obvious. We over could only EU control migration. over EU migration. So we had no control over the total number in, in real life. It's only since then we've been able to make a difference. Obviously, we must now have a policy that enables that to happen. I mean, I think there is a judgment to be made about, you know, what the exact number is and, and by when. But if we do win the next election, certainly with the manifesto that goes into it, we, we have to have a credible plan. And that means taking tough decisions. You know, if it means maybe only giving a certain number of visas every year. And when that number is reached, that is the end. Uh, for that year. And that is that is how you control it. So I think it is going to mean some tougher decisions. But the problem is that while business thinks that the government might change its view on that, or of course that Labour may get in and the, the floodgates will open again, then there's no incentive to invest. It's only when there's no alternative that this is going to happen. And as I say, you can't expect it to happen overnight. 
business got to have time to adjust, but they must understand that this is how it's going to be, and they need to begin the process of adjusting. And actually, I'm already aware of companies, you know, some I've spoken to who are doing that. They they recognise it's changing and are beginning to invest in in capital to replace labour, and we just need to make that more. General And just very briefly on the issue, as I said, putting economics to one side, but on this issue of cultural change in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. Now, we had 1.1 million immigrants come in last year. Now, the net number was about half of that. I believe that was the, the, the highest on, on record. And this is having a big impact on, on how diverse Britain is, on, the, on sort of, you know, our, our population. We had the census statistics come out recently, and you've seen a, a big change in, in some of those demographics. How do you see that change in, in Britain becoming more diverse? How do you re- review that? So I think I, I would distinguish two things. I mean, it is obviously right. We, we must treat everybody who comes into this country legally, fairly, decently with the same sort of rights as everybody else. And that is, I think, the kind of obvious thing. But but because people are often so critical of motives, it needs to be said that obviously is is right. Now, that is a different thing from expectations of people. And I think it is human nature to want to live in a country where there are certain things in common, common loyalty to uh, the nation state and the way it works, the language, the history, all of those things are thought to be important. And I think if you, if you have too many immigrants too quickly, people get unsettled. And you know there is obviously the risk you import disputes from third countries. The Leicester case last year is is an example of that. So I I don't think it is wrong to say Western societies can only cope with so many migrants over any given period, and it is right that people should be able to adjust to that. I think the problem we've got in this country is that you know we've been quite sort of weak in defending national cohesion, nationhood, uh, you know, the constant debate around, you know, what are British values and nobody really seems to know really or, or agree on them. You know, there is no centre to which it's easy for us to say to, to people who are coming here over a, for a prolonged period of time, this is how the country is. This is how we would like you to respect our values, culture, the way we do things here. And Britain has been a very welcoming country traditionally and still is and levels of receptivity to different cultures and so on are ex- are extremely high and that's that's good but there's got to be two sides to the bargain and i think the problem is that enough a large number of people don't feel that all sides to the bargain are being respected and in the end only the government can say this is what this country stands for, these are the things that are important in this country, this is what we want people to be taught, and this is how we would like people to, to act. Now, these debates that we're having now about what, what it means to be British, about how to integrate immigrants into, into Britain, you know, th- these go to the heart of what, is, what Conservatives believe. And some people argue that the Conservative Party today perhaps lacks this debate. So I'm going to quote from a writer called John Oxley. Mm. He says, Many on the left would be shocked how apolitical most, con- most of the Conservative Party is. There is currently no theory in Conservative politics. I suspect no more than a handful of Tory MPs have ever read Burke or Hayek unless they cropped up on a PPE reading list. Is there an intellectual vacuum within the Conservative Party? 
Well, I think I don't want to be critical of MPs and individuals because, you know, I don't I don't know. But I do think it's Mrs. Thatcher famously sort of took a copy out of out of a handbag of the road serfdom by Hayek and showed her cabinet said this is what we believe we need you all to be to read this and it's it's quite hard to imagine that being said of any book or any political philosophy within the party at the moment so I think it comes back to what I was touching on earlier that uh, you know there is not a clear political philosophy at the moment and the party has tried various philosophies and they they haven't gelled and the way I look at this and actually I've got uh, a pamphlet coming out with Politea um, in the next few days on this the way I look at this is that there are two sort of axes in modern politics there's the economic one which is free markets on one hand, socialism, economics on the other. And then there's a values axis. And at one end of that is, there isn't a neutral word, but but kind of globalism, the belief in international institutions, the belief in you know, relatively distant rulemaking, the belief that you know, borders probably are less important than they traditionally be. So all those things go together. That's one end of that. And the, the other is what I call kind of nationhood, I suppose others would say social conservatism, it's the belief in the country, the national democracy, the nation, the institutions, the traditions of doing things. So those to me are the two like axes of, of politics. And I don't think the Conservative Party is offering the right mix of those things at the moment. It has toyed you know, under Cameron, maybe it's offered free markets and globalism, social liberalism to a large extent. That hasn't gelled. At times, under Theresa May, it's offered more social conservatism and nationhood, but also drifted to social democrats, economics, high tax, high spend. And I think the right mix is free markets and nationhood. And actually, that is in many ways the traditional mix of the Conservative Party. It's the party of the nation, it's the party of freedom, it's the party of economic prosperity. And I think we have to be, that to me is the centre ground. And it's frustration that we we haven't offered it. And it doesn't have a, a sort of intellectual spokesman properly that brings all this together. I want to get on to Cameron in a minute because he is, is really interesting and, and the impact that he's had on the Conservative Party, I think, is, is underestimated by many. Mm. Uh, but let's talk about Rishi Sunak to, to begin with. So he's tried to sort of regain the initiative this year with his five priorities, his five sort of tests over the next year. I think that's stop the boats, um, halve inflation, reduce NHS waiting times. I've got the other two here. I've already forgotten them. Uh, maybe you can remember. Grow the economy and reduce the debt. debt yeah. um, so three of them you know, pr- are predicted to basically happen already by economists. So he's been accused of being unambitious. Where would you put Rishi Sunak on that axis that you've described there in terms of conservative philosophy? So I wouldn't say I know Rishi Sunak very well. Obviously, we've we've worked together. We've 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 talked a lot. Actually, I think he could be a bit closer to where I think we should be than many people think. He is a free marketeer. I think I'm disappointed we've drifted into this sort of high tax, high spend model. But but he certainly has said he wants to to get away from that over time, which is good. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that he 
his family background, his interests, that, you know, he, he understands the importance of social cohesion, of tradition, of, of nationhood. I think there's every reason to think we could get there. I don't think we are getting there at the moment. And politics at the moment is very, very tactical. And I, one of the things that strikes me talking to people, both in the party and beyond on the left as well, is that people want authenticity, they want ideas, they want to understand where the country is going. And obviously, the Jeremy Corbyn appeal was, you know, is terrible in many ways, but, but obviously taps into a wish that people could, there was a philosophy, a set of things that he wanted to do and people could get behind. And we've got to try and replicate that. We do need vision. We do need a sense of what is the country going to be like and how are we going to get there and to motivate people. And I, I get, you know, it seems to me people are, are fed up with the sort of tactical games and the, the point scoring and, and so on. That's inevitably part of politics. But you've, you've got to say what you're trying to do, how you differ from your opponents, what the country is going to to be like if you succeed. And at the moment, I don't think any, anyone has quite sort of crystallised this yet. And of course, it's not just about the rhetoric, it's about the outcome, crucially. And if one looks at all of the statistics across various different, I suppose, priorities for British people, then it doesn't look great. I mean, as mentioned, record levels of immigration, the economy is struggling, huge inflation, the NHS waiting times, crime is on the up. I would argue wokeism as a philosophy is on the sort of on the rampage throughout many institutions throughout the country conservatives have been in power for 12 years and i want to break all of that down throughout the the next hour or so mm. but let's start in 2005 peter hitchens the great conservative writer wrote of david cameron i've dismissed the tory party as useless since the cameron revolution in which all the remaining conservative bits of that party were hunted down and exterminated cameron said he was the heir to blair and he meant it. How do you view that Cameron modernising project and its long-term impact on the Conservative Party? So I think the project needed to happen. There's a certain version of social conservatism which um, you know, sometimes drifts into opposing all kind of progress all the time and you know, wishing that there weren't cars and everyone got around by train or, or whatever you hear sort of echoes of this sometime and I, I don't think that is kind of a realistic position. The party needed to modernise in the late 90s, that's clear and in, under Cameron he, he kind of developed that project. I think things, where things went wrong probably was it went a bit too far. It, we, we went too far into describing ourselves as kind of bad people, the nasty party, and I think that has really stuck and it's problematic and, uh, you know, it underlies this belief that so many people on the left are, are that Conservatives are actually bad people, not just people they disagree with politically. So that is one of the reasons I think why politics got so fraught. So, so I think we made things worse for ourselves by going down that road. And then I think it probably went too far and we looked too much at the sort of the diversity, the backgrounds, the the stories of people and, you know, an emphasis on the belief the party had to look like modern Britain, which is not a bad thing, it's good if it does, but you need people who are actual Tories as well 
to achieve that. And uh, I think some of the people who came into the party you know, don't seem to have been quite as conservative as, as others, as we learned in the traumatic period under Theresa May. This obsession with identity perhaps goes back to the Equality Act of 2010, and this is something that you've written about a lot. And we'll, we'll, we'll get on to some of the solutions you think to, to some of the problems at the end of the interview, but I'm, I'm interested in the Equality Act, obviously passed in the dying days of the Brown, or months of the Brown government, Brown administration in 2010. David Cameron's Conservative Party, in coalition with the Liberals, of course, um, did not repeal the Act. You could blame, and I think I do blame, the Equality Act for for many of the problems we've got today in terms of wokeism within government, within the civil service. Civil servants use this Equality Act, which basically protects certain characteristics against discrimination as justification for pushing diversity and inclusion, unconscious bias training, things like that. So can we blame David Cameron for not repealing that act for many of the outcomes that we've had today? So I think it's a pity it hasn't been repealed or at least radically changed. I don't think we can really blame him in 2010 to 2015, because as you say, he was in coalition with the Lib Dems. There was no way they were ever going to agree to change the Equalities Act. So we were stuck with it. I think there's more blame after 2015 not to have, have tackled this. But one of the things that's been said to me is that when I raised this kind of within government from Zanotin was we can't be confident we can do it. You know, you put a reform on the table, but you know, do we have a majority within our own party actually to deliver some of this? Might, might we get amendments that will make it worse rather than better in some ways? Maybe it's better just to kind of let sleeping dogs lie. That may well be correct, but is a sign of just how far the, the problem has gone, that we're not confident we can actually deliver these changes when we need to. The last 12 years of Tory governance, can you give me a number out of 10? How do you rate it? So I, I think it's, it is unfairly criticised quite often. I mean, I would say, you know, we're, we're sort of seven out of ten, I would say. Uh, obviously, I think things would have been a lot worse if we'd not been in power in this period. But, but I think, you know, things like the education reforms that Michael Gove brought in, I'm sorry, they seem to be maybe a bit... The impetus has gone, rather, but they were hugely, hugely important at the time. And I think, you know, they, they can still be... Uh, reinvigorated. That was hugely important. Obviously Brexit, obviously. I think the the record on the pandemic is not as bad as people say. Uh, we got sort of lockdown light in this country to quite a large extent. We've got the vaccine policy right. Boris got the Ukraine policy right. I think one sort of understated thing, though a little ambivalent about universal credit, which was actually a pretty major reform of a very messy system and is not exciting, but is important. I do think it it risks sort of drifting into a universal basic income type system if we're not careful and it's being paid a bit high up the income scale. But nevertheless, that was quite a significant reform. So I, I don't think it's fair to say, you know, we didn't do anything, we didn't deliver anything, we just sort of drifted along. I I think we could and should have done more, but coalition with Lib Dems and then Brexit and the trauma of all of that, it's it's not surprising that probably less got done than we'd ideally have wanted. So as I mentioned, one of the major areas of perhaps failure from a Conservative perspective has been this wokeism within within government in particular, because Mm. that's where, you know, ministers hopefully have have most power to impact things and you as i said you you've seen unconscious bias training you've seen the hiring of of many many diversity and inclusion officers throughout various different government departments 
some estimates spending billions on sort of woke projects, taxpayers' money on, on woke projects. Do you think that conservative politicians have enabled this out of naivety, fear, or a sort of passionate belief in wokeism? I don't think there are many who are passionate believers in, in wokeism. There do seem to be some, unfortunately, amongst our MPs, but, but I, I think it's kind of minority taste. I, I think the party was quite slow to wake up to it. And to be fair, in 2010, when the Equalities Act came in, we did not have the same sort of culture war around wokeism. I hate the word, by the way, but there isn't a different one. But uh, (laughs) at the moment, at least the people understand. It does seem to be a phenomenon that that really blew up in kind of 2013, 2014. If you look at Jonathan Haidt's books, for example, he comments on this sort of radical generational changes as people came through universities into work. Maybe it's connected with social media and so on. And I think we have been slow to recognise it as a problem. And when we have recognised it as a problem, we tend to treat it as a kind of, um, not quite a joke, but to have a, a kind of anecdotal pushback against it, rather the sort of political correctness gone mad view of the world, rather than that there is a very damaging philosophy about how the world works being inculcated in our institutions that we need to argue against and and fight against. And I think at last, perhaps since the BLM demos of 2020 that that really, I think, worried a lot of people, I think since then it, it, it is understood that we've got a serious problem. What needs to be done about it, there isn't yet a consensus. So we've been a bit slow but I think we're getting there now. It's interesting because before um, the Equality Act was was passed in 2009, I've just pulled up a quote here Mm. um, from Polly Toynbee in The Guardian. Now, she described the Act, um, the Draft Act, uh, the bill rather, as an overarching law creating a duty on the whole public sector to narrow the gap between the rich and the poor. Its possible ramifications are mind-bogglingly immense. That's how she described it in 2009. So there were some on the Labour side who, who recognised, I think, the kind of social revolution that the, that the Act could, could have and the impact that the Act There could were, have. definitely. But I think it was very much... I mean, the quote from... The Polly Toynbee quote is interesting because she saw it as a rich-poor yes, thing. Yes, as a class She didn't thing. really think of it as a kind of group rights policy, which is how it's become. The, the rich-poor thing, I think, in terms of government activity, has become rather tokenistic, and that policy's been done in other ways. It's the group rights the identity politics bit of it that's become so damaging and so corrosive. I'm going to quote from a Conservative MP who actually I've had on the podcast before, Steve Baker, a friend of the show. He tweeted recently, as a part of my New Year's resolution, I pledge to be an ally of the LGBT plus community. We must continue to support the LGBT plus community and continue to work to ensure that our society is one where LGBT plus people can live their lives free from hate. Dominic Cummings, someone that I know you worked with previously, he now he tweeted, he quote tweeted this, and he said that circa 100% of MPs are like Harry, as in Prince Harry, NPC bots, bot-like executing scripts written by the New York Times, Harvard, Guardian, BBC culture. Now, just to break that down for people who don't know perhaps what that means, Dominic Cummings is essentially saying that Conservative MPs are sort of reading from the script, from The Guardian, from from the BBC, from the sort of left culture. Do you agree with him on that? Well, 
I'm not sure it's fair to say that 100% of MPs are doing that. It, it is probably a kind of default for a lot of people. And there are very few people who will come out against it. And, you know, obviously, I agree with Steve, in, as I said earlier, that everybody should be treated absolutely equally, fairly. I'm not in favour of discrimination against anybody. I'm in favour, however, of treating people as individuals and people who succeed or don't succeed, who achieve things or don't on their own merits. I don't believe in group rights, that being a certain identity or a member of a particular group gives you extra rights. I think that is the fundamental intellectual error can, uh, that's being made here. And we, we absolutely have to try and push against it. And the interesting thing about the Equality Act is that I think on a technical level, it doesn't give minorities more rights. It gives everyone equal rights. But the way that people interpret that Equality Act is that only minorities should be are, are protected in that sense. So, you know, white people, if they're discriminated against for being white or for being straight or for being a, a bloke, that, that you get the same protection as if you're black or gay or, or whatever. Um, but perhaps civil servants don't quite see it in those terms. You know, there aren't those so-called networks for white, straight people in the civil service. You only get networks. These are sort of organisations within the civil service yeah. for, for gays or, or, or for minorities, which is an interesting, I think, perhaps misinterpretation of the Act. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the problems with the Act is that it, it, it puts more duties on the public sector than on the, the private sector, although some of the practices are spreading into the private sector, the, the legal requirement. And that's why it's been so corrosive in the civil service and, and beyond. This need to sort of positively, not, not positively discriminate, but, but take positive measures to show that you are aware of the possibility of discrimination or the actuality of discrimination and do things about it. That's That's a kind of intellectual error if it's based on group rights. And, you know, I, I, I'm not at all in favour of a civil service network for white, straight men. I think it would be a terrible of course. thing. Yeah, I'm not saying you are, but, but th this is what happens. If yeah. you go down this road, people will say, I only get on if I'm part of a group, and the only group I could be part of is this one. And that is, is so bad for society to start thinking like this. Now, one of the stories that I, I wrote with The Telegraph was about the Treasury, and they introduced for the first time race targets for, so they, for hiring. Um, so I think they said they, they needed 6% of the Treasury civil servants to, to be black, mm. even though this has no correlation with any census data. It seemed to be a completely arbitrary number, which was utterly bizarre. Anyway, let, let's move on from the Equality Act for now. Let's talk about a sense of doom that some Conservatives are feeling. Now, I'm going to a quote from, a, from a, perhaps a doomster writer called Ed West. Now, he says that everywhere there is a real feeling that the country is crumbling, Nothing works properly. Crime is basically legal. Healthcare and transport are both in a dismal state. Far more people talk about emigration. Do you feel a sense of doom about Britain's future? No, I don't. I think there are quite a lot of things that are going wrong and people experience it day to day. Obviously, quite a lot of them are to do with the public sector rather than the, the private sector, though not all of them. I do think we've got into a bit of a rut. I do think the government not specifically the current administration, but generally governments have 
stop, stopped believing that they can solve some of these these problems and have got into a bit of a, a rut over this. But I, d- I don't believe that our problems are insoluble. I think it is really bad if you get into that belief. I also don't think you know we're uniquely bad in this this country. I think go to continental Europe, you find quite a lot of the same mood and politics. It isn't just here and more justifiably in continental Europe because they've given away many of the powers to do anything about them to supranational institutions. We can do something about things here. So I'm, I'm not despairing. I don't think the very bleak view reflects how most people see their, their lives, but they do feel that something is failing in some of the institutions. And obviously we do have you know, a serious political problem, most obviously on planning and house building that is turning off younger people from feeling that it's not just about the party, it's about feeling that there is a prospect for them in the country and that they can they can get on. So, but I think it is really important to be positive. When countries give up, things start to go badly wrong quite quickly. And I, I believe we can solve our problems. Now, I've talked to many guests on this podcast about the broader crisis, perhaps, in Western civilization, mm. and, um, and I want you to comment on that. I think in Britain today, 8 million people take antidepressants. This number is only going up. I think there's a crisis in how young people view the future of their lives, particularly among young men, and you've seen the rise of people like Jordan Peterson and others who are perhaps less tasteful, you know, who have become very popular among, among young men as sort of people who who can have answers for their lives of, of meaning and, and purpose. Do you see the West it, itself facing a broader decline, a sort of cultural decline? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes and no. I'm kind of cautious about predicting the decline of the West because people have predicted it for 100 years and yet we're still the richest bit of of the world at the same time i do think that people many people feel there's a kind there's something kind of missing somehow whether it is the national projects and the value of the country you're 
you're in, whether it's to do with decline of religion, whether it's to do with the sort of weakening of family links. Uh, I suspect all these things are, are, are going together. And I think some people obviously feel uh, you know, that democracy itself is not as compelling as it used to be and that other models should be looked at. So I do think there are some trends that are really worrying. I think too many people are being told they can't succeed without help and that their own inner resources are not enough to kind of get on with their lives and and do things. And maybe that's at the root of some of these problems. But But I still feel like... You know, Adam Smith said there's a deal of ruin in a nation, and that is still true of the West. We have tremendous powers of self-renewal and intellectual resource and tradition and ideas. If only we can get out of the rut and get into power people who believe that things can change. Now, if you are a young person, perhaps you're more conservatively inclined, and, and you're feeling some despair about the, your, the state of your nation, the state of the Conservative Party, and you want to emigrate. What is your advice to them? I would prefer it if people stayed here, uh, because when people give up on a country, uh, it makes it more difficult to succeed. I absolutely recognise, though, that you know, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, the barriers are, are significant in terms of buying houses, accumulating your own resources. Everybody forgets about the, the sort of student tax uh, repaying your, your loans and so on. The marginal rates that people face as younger are really quite sort of punitive, I think. I, I think this is a great country. I don't think we're beaten yet. And I hope people will not give up on us entirely and will work to, to make us succeed. Let's talk about some of the places that they may emigrate to or may want to emigrate to. So people talk about Florida. You've got Ron DeSantis is the, is the governor there. In some Eastern European countries like Poland, there are sort of strong conservative governments. The economy is, is growing pretty quickly. There are some people who say that Poland will be richer than Britain in, by 2030. Mm. Do you think that we can take, the conservative politicians here in the UK can take some lessons from our international sort of um, contemporaries? Yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, what Ron Santos is doing in Florida is, is great. And, you know, he's obviously a very robust politician and one I think we can learn quite a lot from in terms of just getting stuff done and being uh, sort of strong about what you, you believe. I think there are things to be learned from some European politicians as, as well. But I do think a lot of this is contingent go to Florida, but who knows what the next election will bring, go to Poland, but maybe the current government will lose power. Uh, you know, I, I think the more important thing is not to look for an exemplar and say, I'd like to go there, or why can't we all be like that? It's to try and build politics in our country, but also across the West and draw ideas from from others and try and push back against some of the intellectual currents that are making life so difficult for for everybody that's what i you know it's what i'm trying to do in my little way and i hope others will try and do the same now i just want to touch on brexit very briefly now you were the chief brexit negotiator for a period and i'm going to quote again from alastair heath one of our brilliant columnists here at the telegraph mm. 
again, I'm sorry if people feel a bit depressed, but uh, <laughs> nothing gets done. We have grown lazy and everything appears broken. We have adopted a quasi-European social democracy with none of the upsides and all of the downsides. Brexit was an attempt at forcing the establishment to tackle our decline, but so far political parties and the blob have acted as a cartel to maintain the status quo. Now, there are many Conservatives, people who voted for Brexit, if you look at opinion polls, who are now saying they, they regret it or they, or they would rejoin the EU or want mm. to join the EU again. Do you think that Brexit as a project has failed? Absolutely not. First thing is Brexit is about democracy. It's about self-government. So you know, people who say Brexit has failed are really saying that self-government has failed. And I don't believe that for a moment. If you're telling people that, expect people to believe this country has governed itself for a thousand years, has suddenly become unable to do so unless it's part of a federalising European construct. I just don't believe that. I think it's fair to say that we haven't done as much after Brexit as we could have or should have. We haven't delivered everything we'd, we'd like to have done. But we can still get on that path. And I think we are actually a bit further on that path than, than people think sometimes. But this is a profound change. Before Brexit, we were part of the single market. We're growing very slowly. Let's not forget in those last years when we were most closely integrated, productivity and growth was falling off fast. Our economy was adjusting to being part of a European-wide economy. We were a, a bit part manufacturer for high-value-added stuff in, in Germany and Central Europe. We were very focused on a, a cluster of business services, and large parts of the country were just not getting part of this. Now we are shifting to a different model, where we're not in that customs union, we're not in that market, we are taking control of some of those those things. But that is an extremely profound change. And what, what I find surprising is how little turbulence and disruption there's been, not how much. One of the politicians that many Brexiteers look to is Margaret Thatcher. And she seems to be uh, to have a huge shadow looming over Conservative politicians. When you looked at that leadership race over the summer between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, both tried to emulate Thatcher, particularly Truss with those photo opportunities and, 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 and everything else. Do you think that there are other Conservative politicians perhaps that we can look back on throughout history? Sh should Conservative people sort of start to look beyond Thatcher perhaps or do they misinterpret what she was all about? I think all those things to be honest. I do think the Thatcher record is is misinterpreted and she's come to be seen as this sort of crazed free marketeer who didn't care about institutions and just was interested in creating sort of free market year zero. That's the kind of caricature view of what she was about and of course she wasn't about that at all. She was about bringing more freedom, more free markets, more economic rationality into the way we ran ourselves. But she was also um, a very profound believer in British nationhood, in keeping the nation strong, in, in social conservative ideas, in our, in our history and traditions. And that, I mean, actually is very much what I was talking about earlier, trying to bring these two things together. So, but unfortunately, when you talk about being inspired by the Thatcher legacy. People tend to misinterpret what that's about, so it is only partly useful. There are obviously British politicians who 
you know, reflect other aspects of that. It was a very different world at the end of the 19th century, but, but Lord Salisbury in his emphasis on tradition, on British institutions, on the need for the sort of incremental change, if there had to be change, is a very interesting and important figure. And of course, go back to Burke, you know, very much the same view that institutions are organic, change should happen organically, designed change is often a bad thing. You have to give room to civil society and uh, allow people to make their own lives and views about things. So I think there's a lot in our own tradition we can And you can go back even further as a history graduate who studied medieval Europe, is that right? So who who else can, maybe you can mention? So, well, I mean, (laughs) there are are many great writers on the English common law system, John Fortescue in the 15th century, for example. I mean, very interesting the way he, I've just been rereading him, uh, following reading um, what Yoram Hazani says about him in his in his book, and it's very interesting how even in the 15th century he's distinguishing the kind of political community that England has, which is a, was a monarchy, but with a, we would now say a civil society and a legal system that was not entirely subject to the king's will. Contrasting that with France, where he saw that that actually was the the situation, the king's will was what mattered. So I think some of our traditions go back quite a long way. And, you know, we don't always, we're not always aware of it. Individuals don't know the ideas they're drawing on. But I think our political tradition in this country is different and an inspiring one, which is not to say we can't draw on others. And, you know, if I'm looking at conservative politicians who I find inspiring and have done great things. I would look at de Gaulle in France, standing up for the nation. I'm not so, so such a fan of his economic policy, but uh, what he did for France, turning it round, was, was absolutely crucial. Adenauer in Germany and Erhardt, his economics minister, the risk they took to sort of sweep away controls in the late 40s and early 50s and create the, the economic miracle. That is the kind of vision and kind of risk-taking that we, we need to, to do. Or, you know, more recently, Jose Maria Aznar in Spain, his, his view of foreign policy and Spain's position in the West. Anders Fogh Rasmussen in Denmark, he is the intellectual originator, I think, of the tax freeze that we tried to put in, well, is in our manifesto in 19... 2019, but hasn't been delivered on. So I, I don't think we should be parochial about this. But people come, politicians are formed by their own countries and they have their own traditions and they're responding to different things. But there's a lot we can learn still from how others have faced challenges. The interesting thing about de Gaulle is that he, he took away France's humiliation and he brought their sort of honour back as a country. Yeah. And that was the crucial thing. And maybe perhaps Britain needs a sort of de Gaulle-like figure to be able to do that today. I think we can be, yeah, I mean, I, I, we probably do need something like that, or at least people, if not an individual, people who are inspired by that, the belief that the country is a meaningful and worthwhile thing. And, you know, de Gaulle, he never stopped treating, believing that France was an important country, even when it had been defeated and occupied. And because he never stopped believing that, he succeeded. And 
you know, we have to believe, we should believe that our country is an important thing. And too many people seem to want to see it devolve, they're too, d dissolve, they're too in favour of excessive devolution. They flirt with independence, they flirt with devolution. They, they don't seem to value the traditions and the history and nationhood and the institutions. And that is hugely disappointing. Now, I haven't read it, but I've, I've heard that Henry Kissinger's book on leadership is, is fascinating, and he mentions a lot of the people that you, you, mm. you've talked about. He does, um, actually. Yeah, you're right. I'm going to quote one last quote from this interview, and it's actually a quote from you. So we're going to talk about Reform UK. So you wrote in a Telegraph column, the reality is that Reform UK cannot yet replicate the infrastructure, the networks of councillors and party workers that make a difference in a general election. And anyway... Why should we abandon our party to those who are, who are in many ways not conservative at all? If some MPs don't like conservative policies, it should be they who leave, not us. OK, so if conservative MPs have given up on, on conservative policies and on good governance, why shouldn't we look for alternatives? Well, I don't think many conservative MPs have. I think there probably is a small minority fringe who you know, might well be happier in another party or doing some other things. But I don't think that's like the mainstream of the the party. I mean, I think the quote sort of says it really, that this party has st stands for, has stood for uh, a certain set of political and economic beliefs. And we shouldn't allow that to be lost. I don't think it has been lost yet. I think we are at the moment where we need a refresh and we need uh, dynamism and people who believe in these things visibly to take us forward. But I, I think before we risk sort of destroying that inheritance in favour of something totally different, you know, we've got to be completely sure that it's not renewable. As I say, institutions, you know, organic renewal is is always better. And I think, you know, we're a long way from being beaten or broken in the Conservative Party. Now, if I wanted to take a practical step as a Conservative member to try and take back control, to use that famous phrase, of my party, would you recommend that where there are Conservative MPs who are clearly on the left, who clearly don't believe in Conservative policies, as you put it, they should try and deselect those MPs in a grassroots movement? So I, I know there is this grassroots movement, the Conservative Democratic Organisation forming itself. I understand what they're trying to do and I have a degree of, sort of sympathy with it. At the same time, I'm cautious about you know, too much direct democracy in that way within party structures. Uh, you need a certain amount of it and arguably we've tilted a bit too far against it in the last few years. But but equally, I don't think we want a situation where MPs are merely the mouthpiece of party activists. That didn't work well for Labour and it probably won't work well for us. What you need is a proper dialogue between party members, between party activists, councillors and MPs. And, you know, I wouldn't tell any association or local party what to do if they're unhappy with their their MP. I think there are things they, they can do in those circumstances. We don't need a kind of cultural revolution within the party 
to achieve it. One of your columns, you said you were a civil servant, a special advisor and a minister. So you're quite unique in holding a series of roles mm. in government. You, un- you likely understand how government works better than most people. Do you think that ministers or civil servants have more control over their departments? I think in day to day, civil servants are in charge of the, their departments. And, you know, as I said, I think I quoted it somewhere in, in Yes, Minister, hum- Sir Humphrey tells Hacker at one point, Minister, you're not here to run this department and he reacts in horror at this. But he's correct that constitutionally, you know, the management of the departments is done by the, the civil servants in, in accordance with priorities that are set by the, the, the politicians. And I think it's too easy to say that when ministers are clear what they want to do, the department always responds. I don't think that's always true. One of the things that worries me a bit about the civil service in recent years is that it seems to be coming to think of itself as a, as a kind of independent organisation representing certain values and ways of doing thing, things within government and the state, which are distinct from what uh, any given set of politicians want. And I, I don't. that's not what the Armstrong doctrine says. It says civil service is there to serve the government of the day, and that is still in force, and that is still correct. But I think one of the problems is because civil servants are responsible for managing their own departments day to day, doing HR, doing finance, permanent secretary is the accounting officer, let's not forget, responsible to the public accounts committee, not the, not the minister. Because they're responsible for that, the whole kind of, in inverted commas, woke agenda of how you prioritise, how you run yourselves, how you select, promote, recruit, all this sort of thing, has come to be the power of civil servants and they don't like it when ministers say, we don't want it done like this. And some of the more forceful ones say back, you know, you're not here to run this department. And that's why we get this cultural conflict. I think the the Northcote Trevelyan model is probably broken and I think we do need significant civil service reform now and a, a kind of fusion of the political and administrative in a way that we, we haven't had but now needs to happen. Are we talking about the American model where they sort of hire and fire 40,000 people each presidential I mean term? something like that. I mean you don't need to, I mean it's a much bigger administration than ours for one thing but the problem with the US system is the fact that it takes a long time to sort of confirm and bring people in, not the fact that they, they bring people in. So I think there are ways of, of dealing with this and I, I just think it is not the reality nowadays that administration is easily distinguishable from politics. If you're confronted with a particular problem of some kind in government, there's a kind of left-wing solution to that problem, there's a kind of right-wing solution, and probably variations on, on all of those things. And to say somehow there's, there's a kind of objective solution that the civil service can stand for is just not, is just not real. It has to take account of the fact that politicians are elected to do certain things. Politicians have the right to decide what those things are within the general constitutional framework, and they have the right to get them done. And that means they need people around them who believe in the same things, who support them, and who are committed to getting those things done. And at the moment, the system doesn't deliver that and I think it needs to. Perhaps there's a certain level of groupthink amongst civil servants where they believe that their core values, as you put it, 
are, are, are not political in any way. You know, the culture has shifted so much to the left among probably many civil servants and just across the country in general, among you know, high-level institutions, mm. that these people, they don't see their views as being inherently political. They are just the obvious answer and perhaps you know, alternatives are, are, are extreme or racist or, I don't know, whatever. I mean, I think there has been that kind of cultural shift. You know, obviously, you know, elite opinion, establishment opinion about things uh, has drifted to the left over time. When I joined the Foreign Office in the late 80s, it was a clearly conservative with a small c organisation. I don't know how people voted, but the people in charge of it, the senior civil service, were sort of establishment figures. And I think they would have found extraordinary the idea that most government departments are now feel sort of liberal, social, democratic. And I, I don't think they should feel anything. I think they should feel more strongly than they do, that their job is there to deliver on what the elected politicians want done. Let's talk about some of the potential solutions to these issues. Now, you've touched on it there. Mm. Perhaps there are certain departments that don't need to exist. I'm thinking about um, culture, media and sport, for example, or why is there an equalities minister or a women's minister? Mm. Do you think that there needs to be a vast sort of cutting back of of some of the perhaps overspending or waste or bloating of government? Mm. So again, yes, Minister, at some point Humphrey says you don't have a minister for something because you want them to do anything. You, you, this there to show that you approve of something. And I think there is a, still quite an element of that in who we, who we choose. And some jobs have been, you know, some roles become to be particularly symbolic in the, the system. I think the, the structure of government is sort of less important. I think there definitely are reforms that could could happen and we seem to have quite a lot of departments, some massive, some extremely small. But the important thing is to get it smaller. The structure is less important. Fewer things need to be decided by government. More things need to be decided by individuals using their own money, using their own resources. And overall government and people running it needs to shrink. That, that should be the aim, and unfortunately it's not happened at least in the last five or six years. The Cameron government was achieving that very slowly, but was achieving it, and we need to get back to that. In terms of the legal reforms that Conservatives could make, we've obviously mentioned the Equality Act a lot throughout this interview. Online Safety Bill, I want to get your thoughts on that. The Communications Act 2004, that's another one where you may want to to look into. What other sort of legal reforms could Conservatives think about? The most important thing is that the party needs to decide what it's about in this area, what it wants to do uh, and what it stands for. And while there is visible division and disagreement about some of the the sort of fundamental political purposes of the party is always going to be difficult to do real reform because the way the system works, the civil servants can spot the disagreement and and slow things down. You will always get MPs and parliamentarians and the Lords blocking stuff. You'll have dispute with the devolved administration and so on. So only the the absolute prerequisite is the party has got to decide it wants to do something about this and it isn't going to put up with argument about it any longer. And to define the problem shows that we are still some way, uh, I would say, from being to that point. If you've done that, I think there are two things. One is there are areas where we can and should legislate. The online safety bill, I mean, the latest version is better, 
definitely. I'm not 100% sure that it does everything that it should, but I, I slightly reserve judgment till I've had a chance to think properly about this. I think on that, the party needs to stand up for free speech more broadly. I don't see why we can't have a principle online, excluding children, that if you can say and do something offline, you can say and do it online. I don't like the way, you know, the Malicious Communications Act and so on have been used to um, police speech in a way that is, I, I think, Quite literally that's happened. I mean, people, yeah, people are being arrested yeah. for, yes. for tweets. And this is, under, again, under a Conservative government, it seems mad that this is happening. And, and I, I, I no totally serious. agree. So I, I think there are some areas where we can and should legislate. The Equalities Act, the, you know, the Online Safety Act. It is in our power to make it clear that unless you are inciting violence or in some other narrowly defined areas, speech is not policed in this country and the police have no business getting involved in it. So there are things you can do through legislation, I think, but the government has to also just stand up for certain things more more visibly. Part of the problem is that people feel cowed. They won't speak because they feel that somebody will come after them or it will be disastrous for their career or or whatever. So they just shut up. And I think the government has to be much, much clearer that certain things are okay. It's okay to put out your views about sex and gender and the trans issue. And, and, and we will protect you yes, if you do. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that at the moment is not as robust as, as I would like it to be. And kind of on the intersection of those two things, there are things you can do with appointments to the institutions, the boards of the, all the quangos and, and, and so on, where we, we, we just haven't sought to bring balance in a way that I think we reasonably can, partly because so much of the establishment is, is sort of social democratic in character and finding people who are willing to put their head above the parapet is difficult nowadays. Near impossible. Yeah. Um, just, just one last question, and, and this is about sort of government spending and quangos. So if you look at the breakdown in some government spending, taxpayer money, vast amounts of money are going to left-wing institutions, arts council, quang different quangos, office for students, for example, another one. So there's a huge, um, I think, uh, you know, potential for reforming in, in quangos. What do you think should happen in that area? With the exception of education, children, and so on. I don't think it's right for the government to uh, sort of legislate for certain opinions or against certain opinions. I, I think the, the task of the government ought to be to protect free debate and free institutions and to allow people to, to say what they want. So I think it is wrong for the Arts Council or whoever, I'm not, I, I don't know this example, for any institution to be putting like diversity equality conditions derived from the Equalities Act on how they, they hand out their, their money. But I'm not also not in favour of the government saying we don't like these conditions, there should be some other conditions. These, these things just need to be depoliticised. And one of the problems in this country at the moment is that everything is political. 
we, we seem to live our lives it's sort of constantly with the government looking over our shoulder, hectoring us about you know what, what we do with our rubbish or how we travel or what we think about things. And we just need to, we've stopped realizing how historically how unusual that is. And we just need to get politics out of some of this. And the, the government can be more forceful in requiring all of this. Thank you so much, Lord Frost, for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.